if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. As we continue to make our way through the Psalms, we are coming towards the end of a, of a section that really climaxes with Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is about man being given dominion over all the earth, and the psalmist is, is reflecting on this and wondering, what is man that you are mindful of him? And that's the, sort of the climax of this initial section where you have David being persecuted and being delivered and ultimately trusting in that great promise that man shall reign forever. We come this morning to the end, or towards the end of this section in Psalm 7, where again we'll see David petitioning the Lord to, as a reflection of his righteous character, render judgment in his favor against his enemies. And so this morning as we look at this psalm, we're going to look especially at the nature of God as a righteous God and as a righteous judge, as well as the, the nature of a righteous man and God's righteous people and their response uh, to Him. So we'll read the whole psalm together, Psalm 7, uh, beginning in verse 1. You can see at the, the top in the superscript that is titled a Shigayon of David, a musical term which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. And David writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, beginning in verse 1, O Lord my God, in You do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O oh Lord, in Your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil 
and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, You are indeed a righteous God. You have nothing in You that has any measure of delight in sin and wrongdoing. You are a God who, by Your very righteousness and because of the goodness of Your character, are constantly at war and are against sin. Lord, we see here even in the the petitions and the prayer and the song of David that because he believed that you are who you say you are, that you are a righteous God and a righteous judge, that you are one who should make war against his unrighteous enemies, that you are one who, according to your promises, has fixed a day of judgment where you will bring condemnation against the wicked, and will acquit the righteous. So Lord, this morning as we, as we study this psalm, as we hear from Your Word, I pray that You would reveal to us chiefly Your character as a righteous God. And that we would not join ourselves to the wicked, that we would not remain in sin, that we would not play with it in any way, that we would not join ourselves to the devil. That, Lord, we would repent of our sins, that we would unite ourselves to God in Christ, that He would be our refuge, and we would be counted righteous, and so receive the gift of life rather than the gift of damnation, and that you would rule in favor of your people. So Lord, show us yourself this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There was a uh, recent study that uh, came out, was released on the music that churches Uh, tend to sing for worship, and uh, it found that virtually all of the most popular songs that are sung by churches were written by Bethel, uh, Hillsong, and Elevation Church. These are, if you're not familiar with them, three of the largest churches in America, three mega churches that are without question heretical. They teach false doctrine. The authors of the study likewise found that only a few of these most popular songs have any mention 
of the cross, any mention of salvation, and that the vast majority of them are in some way about what God will do for me. Now, there is a man-centeredness to the Psalms and often very little theology, which when played on repeat in the churches necessarily diminishes the theology of those very same churches. But having said that, even in our more reformed circles, our theology can likewise be diminished, or at least not as well developed as it should be when we confine ourselves to singing only hymns. There was, in the past, somewhat of a controversy among early Baptists over whether or not a church should sing psalms exclusively, or if they could add hymns within the singing of the congregation as well. But of course, now we've swung in the total opposite direction. Now it's more so of an issue of can we introduce psalms into the worship because we largely sing exclusive hymnody. And as great and as rich, truly, as many of these hymns are, there are often certain biblical themes that are largely absent. Every week I often try to select songs for us to sing together that have some sort of connection to a passage that we read or to the sermon that is being preached, but there are times when I come across a passage or we're preaching through a text and there's really just no hymn for it. There's not one that really touches on or emphasizes a particular theme, or at least a hymn of some sort of familiarity. Take, for example, the psalm that we're in this morning. One of its major points is the fact that God will judge the wicked. Verse 11, He feels indignation every day. Now, we have, of course, plenty of hymns that speak of God's judgment and His anger being appeased by the atoning work of Christ, but not many that just emphasize the idea of justice and final judgment. Not many that praise God for the destruction of the wicked, as we see here in this very psalm. And yet, not only is this a constant theme throughout many of the songs in the Old Testament, but we find even at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 19, a great multitude are singing praises to God at the downfall and judgment of the rebellious city Babylon. And this multitude are the saints. Those who have died in the Lord. They are singing before Him. Hallelujah! And why? 
because we read in chapter 19, His judgments are true and just. That's what they're praising Him for. His judgments are true and just because He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Because they go on to say, He has avenged on her the blood of His servants and because the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That's what they're singing in their song to the Lord after He has brought His judgments to bear on the rebellious city. Now, how many, how many songs? How many hymns? Can you think of that sing like that? That say things like that? And of course, one of the consequences of neglecting a theme like this one, like the justice of God, is that it leaves us susceptible to embracing all kinds of false and unbiblical ideas of justice which itself can have further implications for how we understand things like the atonement. Is it good? Is it righteous for God to pour His just wrath upon the Son for our sake? If our understandings of biblical justice are inadequate, it will affect even how we understand the central message of the Gospel. This is one of the things you even see currently in the culture and within the larger church presently. Confusion over even what justice means. We don't have strong biblical concepts of justice. And so what happens is that it just gets replaced by all other forms, a multitude, a, a variety of different justices. We have now social justice. We have restorative justice. We have research justice, academic justice, climate justice, racial justice, epistemic justice, linguistic justice, and more. I'm anticipating. In fact, on this one, I'm kind of hopeful that eventually we'll get to a day where we have stake justice. Because the only just way to eat a steak is medium rare, right? Amen. Right? As long as we're multiplying our various concepts of justice, we are moving further and further away from the biblical ideas of it. The point is that even our best hymnals, because they are by definition topical, they can be inadequate, or they can neglect certain themes, not out of any malicious intent, but, but sometimes just as a matter of oversight. And so reincorporating the Psalms into the life of the church can help to remedy this Problem. It can broaden and deepen our understanding of God and His ways to, to sing the songbook of the people of God written by God Himself can often 
probably as we've seen lately, challenge many of the categories we're already operating with. Just earlier, we sang Psalm 5, and you'll notice there, I mean, as we're singing that, the way things are expressed tend to be very different than even many of our great hymns it will express things. So the more that we incorporate the the songbook of God into the life of the church, the more it can develop and increase and deepen our own biblical thoughts and categories. And the psalm that we come to this morning is an example of a psalm that teaches us about things like the justice and righteousness of God about calling on Him to bring His justice against the wicked and about singing His praise for carrying out His judgments. We know very well how to sing about God's salvation. I think one of the things we tend to lack on is how to join with David in singing also about his judgments. The psalm is also, like many other psalms, structured as a chiasm. And so as we make our way through this psalm, I want to begin in the very center of the psalm, which when you have a chiasm, that's usually where the main point is to be found. I want to begin looking at the very center of it, where this main point is made, and we'll consider first what David says here about God being a righteous God. What does it mean that he's righteous? Now, in the context of the psalm, David is being accused of, he's he's being maligned for wrongdoing, of repaying someone evil for good. It's a... False accusation, but it's one that presently is threatening his very life. It was either leveled against him during the days of Saul or the days of Absalom, but it's probably more likely that it's the former because the, the, the very beginning of the psalm speaks of these words being penned after Cush, a Benjaminite, had said certain things about him. And of course, Saul himself was from the tribe of Benjamin. So that's probably the the context. At some point in David's life when he's on the run from Saul. And in this psalm, David is appealing to God's righteous and just character to vindicate him from his enemies. He's calling upon God to execute his judgments on his behalf and against his wicked enemies. And in the center of this psalm, we see him making this very point most clearly. He says in verse 9, if you look with me there, he says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. He wants the wicked who are seeking his life to face judgment. Because in and through their judgment, their wickedness will cease 
And the result of the judgment will be that the righteous are established. And as he makes this petition, he appeals to God's own righteousness as the reason why this should happen. At the end of verse 9, he refers to God as you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. And then he adds of himself, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God, fundamentally here, is righteous. This is a judicial term. It's the language of the courtroom. His very nature, the essence of his being is characterized by righteousness. He must, of necessity, be against evil and before good. All of his actions, which flow from his essential nature, must uphold that which is good and be against that which is evil. And because he is righteous, the prayer that David prays and which is in accordance with the will of God is that evil will come to an end and the righteous will be established. As a righteous God also, God is not limited in His judgments by what can be seen with the naked eye. Of course, you know, like a, a regular judge in a courtroom is limited by whatever evidence is placed before Him. God is not limited in that way. No, we are told He even sees the heart. He judges according to the thoughts and intentions and desires of a man. He is the righteous God who tests the minds and hearts. Now, over the years, I have heard many preachers butcher this very idea, this, this very statement here that is made about God seeing and testing the heart. I remember distinctly, this is, I'd probably been a Christian probably a year or two at, at this point, and I remember distinctly listening to a very well-known preacher who was preaching on um, 1 Samuel 16, uh, verse 7, um, where something similar is said. The Lord says of Himself, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the preacher was quoting this and, and basically saying, like, how, how good is this? How great is this? Because he knows, and he was saying, how much he knows that he's done so many wicked things. He's sinned so greatly in his life. But isn't it great that God sees his heart and how good it is? <laughs> That's the opposite of what that text was saying and what this text is saying as well. It is certainly good that God sees the heart, but not because He'll be able to see all the goodness that lies within me, because there's no goodness <laughs> that lies within me in anyone's natural state apart from Christ 
what lies within the heart is rebellion. And when he gazes upon that, that's what arouses his indignation, his just judgments. So in that sense, it's good that as a righteous God, He sees the heart so that He can carry out His judgments in pure righteousness. But of course, it is not good in the sense that if you are guilty, if you are apart from Christ, He will find you out and nothing will be hidden from His eyes. We see something very similar said, in fact, both in this psalm as well as in Jeremiah chapter 11 and verse 20, where, in fact, the same phrase is used there in Jeremiah 11. And both in this psalm and in Jeremiah 11, the context is one of judgment. In Jeremiah 11, for example, Jeremiah is lamenting in a similar manner as David in this psalm over the fact that the wicked men who are around him are scheming to have him killed. They don't want to hear him prophesy anymore. They want his voice to come to an end and they will do that by killing him. And he says in verse 19 of that chapter, he says, but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me that they devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name be remembered no more. And then, verse 20, Jeremiah responds to the petition to the petition. And he says, but O Lord of hosts who judges righteously, who tests the hearts and the mind. Let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. The idea of God testing the heart and the mind speaks to the totality and comprehensive nature of His judgments, that there is nothing that can escape from His eye. There is nothing that can be hidden from Him. No matter how much evil the wicked commits and how much he tells himself, I will never be found out. No one will ever know. God will know. God knows. And He will carry out His judgments in accordance with everything He knows. Even if there were a wicked man who were to assemble the whole world to his side and were to convince them of the righteousness of His calls through deception, God would not be blind to His schemes. And the wicked's downfall would be a certainty because God would be against him. And God is righteous. Fundamentally, that's what it means for God to be righteous. He will do always what is right. Now, in a similar vein, there's a second and related idea we see in this psalm 
which is that of God not only being righteous, but being a righteous judge. We see this in verses 6 to 8, and then in the corresponding verses of 11 to 13. Now, in verses 6 to 8, David is calling upon God to bring his judgments against his enemies, those who are slandering him and seeking to kill him. And in this petition for judgment, David is simultaneously looking forward to the final judgment to come while requesting that that judgment, in a sense, be brought to bear on earth now. In a sense, you could think of it as if the final judgment to come is breaking into the world now. That's what he's calling on God to happen. There is a judgment to come, and God, according to that judgment, judge my enemies now. He says, for example, in verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. His enemies have anger. His enemies have fury. And he's calling upon God to carry out His righteous fury against them. And he wants God to act now. He needs God's deliverance now. But he's also, as I said, reflecting on this final day of judgment. For he says further, he says, Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you and over it return on high. It's very similar, very similar to what we read from Matthew 25 when all of the peoples are gathered to Christ in His glorious throne, before His throne for judgment. That's what David is saying here. God, You have appointed a judgment. Assemble the peoples. And even in the context of the Psalms, this reference to this judgment harkens back to the very first Psalm. In Psalm 1, verse 5, which speaks there of a day of judgment against the wicked where there are two congregations of people who are separated by whether they are considered righteous or wicked. We read in Psalm 1, verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. David, in this psalm, is hastening that day to come. He wants God to assemble the peoples and to enter into His judgment. And even more, He wants the judgment to have a present effect against His current enemies. And as He speaks further on of this judgment, we find also that one of the purposes of the judgment is to bring vindication to the righteous. It's not just a carrying out of condemnation against the enemies of God, but it also includes a vindication of the righteous. In verse 8, he says, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness 
and according to the integrity that is in me. Now, just for the sake of clarity, David is not saying here that he is completely without sin. Although, we know that is the case for David's greater son, Jesus, who is the one who most completely fulfills these very words. But we know even from this psalm that David speaks later in verse 12 of the need for men to repent, which in other psalms, David himself models very well of what repentance looks like. But here, in the face of all of these false accusations against him, he's appealing to God to vindicate him. All of these accusations, all of these things that are dragging his name through the mud and are threatening his very life, they're all false. He hasn't wronged anyone. He's not guilty of the charges that are being leveled against him and the slander that is ruining him. In that respect, he is righteous. In that respect, he has integrity within him. It'd be the same, for example, as if you were accused of committing some heinous crime like murder. And you know, you, you didn't do that. Now, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, well, I know, I know we have hatred in our hearts and that makes me a murderer, so you, you know, yes, I guess, I guess I'm guilty. Right? You wouldn't say that. You'd say, no, <laughs> I didn't commit murder. I'm innocent. I'm righteous. And you're talking about the accusations that are being charged against you. This is what David is doing here. He is calling upon God to vindicate him from all of these false charges. He is not here offering up some self-righteous prayer. It's not as if he's going to God and saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That's not his prayer. No, the situation is that he's being falsely accused and he's asking God to intervene on his behalf and to vindicate him. And the point here in the psalm is that particularly in the judgment that God has appointed for all the peoples, one of the things he will do and he does in his judgments is vindicate the righteous. Those who repent those who trust in Christ will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ and acquitted from the eternal judgment and cleansed of all their sins. But they will also, by the grace of God, bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. And rather than hearing in the day of judgment Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Rather than hearing those words that you are one who has committed evil and who have walked your whole life in evil, the righteous will hear, well done. Well done. You've done. You've acted. 
You've done well, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. There is a very real sense in which the people of God who are righteous by virtue of their union with Christ also bear righteous fruit in accordance with that righteousness they have from Christ. I think it needs to be stressed as well. It needs to be said because we often, we often err on these, these categories. If, if you claim to be a follower of Christ and your whole life is marked by sin and ungodliness, you really need to examine yourself. You need to ask the Lord to search you, to find what is truly within, because you may in fact indeed be utterly lost and self-deceived. Those who walk with Christ bear the fruit of Christ. That doesn't mean that you'll never be without sin. Obviously, we know from from the New Testament that we we have sin. We must confess that sin. But there's a very real sense in which it makes sense to call the people of God saints because they look like saints. They look different from the world. They don't love the things of the world. They're not indulging in sin. They're fighting against sin. They're inviting others within their lives to hold them accountable for their sin. They want nothing to do with unrighteousness. That must be a mark of all of our lives. If we claim we follow Christ, well, we must follow Him. We must obey His commands with, no doubt, the help the Spirit of God and God's grace. But we must follow Him. And in so much as we do, we will hear those words on the basis of our faith in Christ, on the basis of the good works that He has, well, let me rephrase that, not on the basis, but as a result of those good works that we have in Christ, we will hear from God Himself, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, on the other hand, the wicked who do not repent of their wickedness, we are told very clearly, will be destroyed in God's judgment. David speaks in verse 11, for example, about the fact that God's righteous indignation is settled against them. He says God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And he warns in verses 12 to 13 that if a man does not repent, God will ready his weapons of war with which he will execute his judgments against him. And of course, this statement here, this is is not just an Old Testament message. This is even how the very gospel was preached by the apostles. There is both warning, and good news. In fact, there is no such thing as good news apart from the reality of warning, apart from the understanding that there is a judgment. And this is how the apostles 
proclaimed the gospel. When the Apostle Paul, for example, was preaching in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he warned the Athenians that God commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. That's Paul. He's not... um, He's not just a fire and brimstone preacher, right? What that means usually is that you you preach all judgment and there's no gospel, that there's no hope. But you you can't err on the other side and proclaim a gospel that has no good news because there was no bad news that preceded it. What Paul proclaimed, what all the apostles proclaimed, proclaimed was the reality that there is a coming judgment but in the grace of God he extends forgiveness to all rebellious sinners who if they repent will not suffer from that judgment will have their sins cleansed and the judgment will be borne by another and so friends there is indeed a judgment that is to come and that judgment will sort out and expose who you really are who the righteous are and who the wicked are and you have to ask yourself i i i call you this morning to ask yourself who are you among are you a part of the wicked or are you a part of the righteous Are you one who has rejected God and who rejects Christ, who does evil, who hides evil in your heart? Are you a child of Adam and only an offspring of the devil? Can it be said of you, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, your father is the devil and you do his will? Are you among the wicked in that sense? Or are you among the righteous? Are you one who has trusted in God and in Christ? And who, as a consequence, walks in the good works that God has appointed for you beforehand? Do you turn from evil? Do you root out all of the remnants of the old man from within you? Do you make war against your sin? Are you a child of God and an offspring of Christ by virtue of the new birth? Have you been made new? Have you been given a new heart? Have your desires been changed? Do you long for God? Or do you long for the world? These are the Distinguishing marks of the righteous and the wicked. And you can know these things now. You can know where you stand, which congregation you are a part of by repenting and by trusting in the Lord. There's no rocket science that's involved here. The Word of God is clear. You want to know if you will stand righteous before God, you join yourself to Christ. You trust in Him. You repent of your sins. But as Scripture also teaches, these things will 
ultimately and finally be revealed in that judgment that is to come. Now, additionally, I want to consider a little bit more of what this psalm teaches us about the character of the righteous, this this group called the righteous. And I have two points that we'll close with this morning on this particular matter. The first, one of the distinguishing marks of the righteous, the first is that the righteous trust in God's judgments. They trust in His judgments. And what I mean by this is that the righteous who most fundamentally are those who follow God, they don't fear God's judgments. Or at least they're not terrified by His judgments. They don't carry God's judgment as a burden that is against them. They have a clean conscience. Their guilt of sin has been atoned for. And so the judgment becomes something that they trust in and hope in, and it becomes the means through which their own final salvation arrives. Now in verses 3-5, to we find that David is so confident in his own innocence, particularly when it comes to these false accusations against him, that he's literally calling on God's curse to fall on him if he's guilty. He's basically saying, if I've done this, lay my glory in the dust. That's the the confidence he has before God and His judgments. If I have committed this evil, bring your curse upon me. He can give Himself totally and completely into the hands of God's righteous judgments because he trusts that God will do what is right. And in the same way, the Christian can trust in God's judgments because he knows that the penalty for his own sins has already been carried out on the Son of God who died in His place and that He has been clothed in the righteousness of the Son, and therefore, He is able to stand before God as perfectly righteous and perfectly blameless. This is in fact the confidence that we can have ourselves before God. This is the boldness we can have. We can say, With the Apostle Paul, as he says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, that's what you can say of yourself. You can say, God, if I'm guilty, let Your curse fall upon me. And you can say that knowing that you're not guilty because you've already been covered in the righteousness of Christ. Unless you stand righteous before God. The verdict has already been declared. If we are in Christ and if we trust in Him, united to Him by covenant, joined to Him as a bride to a groom, what can be said of Him can be said of you. If you say of Christ that He's righteous and you are united to Him, that's what can be said of you. You are righteous. 
If you can say of Christ, He is the heir of all things. It can be said of you as well. You are an heir with Him. A co-heir of the kingdom of God. What can be said of Him can be said of His people by virtue of that union we have with Him. And so the righteous as a result can trust in God's judgments. Now this of course is not the case, however, for the wicked. The one who stands outside of Christ and who will not repent of sin. What you are in that state is utterly guilty before God. There is no middle ground there. You are in a very real sense either righteous or wicked. And apart from Christ, the verdict that falls upon you is that of guilty. Your nature before God and His verdict of you is what is described in verses 14 to 16. The wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. What is within him is evil. And what comes out of him is the fruit of evil. And what he sows, he will also reap. David describes the wicked as a man who, who digs a pit as a trap. And then he falls into it himself. He's destroyed by his own evil schemes. And that's the result of the wicked in God's judgment. He receives exactly what he deserves. For all of the evil that he's committed and all the evil he has held within his own heart, God will repay him what he is owed. And what he is owed as a wicked man is death. For as we are told by Paul himself, the wages of sin are death. You make yourself an enemy of the righteous God and the wages are death. There is no trusting in God's judgment for the wicked because God's judgment is what brings about His downfall. There's no longing for, there's no hoping for the judgment to come because that coming judgment means His end. It's the very opposite for the Christian who hopes in God's coming judgment because it's through that judgment that He's saved and He enters into eternal life. But if you hold on to sin, and if you try and conceal it or hide it, it will kill you. Which leads us, last of all, to the second point about the righteous that we see in the psalm. Which is that the righteous also praise the righteousness of God. He not only trusts in God's judgments. He not only is assured that God will do what is right, but the righteousness of God is the very thing that delights Him. God's 
very judgments are the very things that should cause us to sing in the way that David is singing in this psalm. And we sing of his judgments, or we are to sing of his judgments, not because we want to see people perish as if there's some strange delight in seeing the wicked refuse to turn from their sin. That's not what we're celebrating. We want the wicked to turn. But what do we sing about? And why do we sing of God's judgments? No, we, we praise God for His righteousness because we delight to see His name exalted as He does what is right and true and pure. Now you can look at the beginning of the psalm and you see there that David begins with this posture of trust. He, he, he takes his refuge in God and he calls on God to save him from his persecutors. And then when you come full circle to the end of the psalm, we find him there praising God because he knows that God will answer his prayers and save him. He says in verse 17, he says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. God's actions, God's promises, God's determination to act righteously, God's judgment, all of these things bring David, even in the midst of affliction, so much joy that it causes him to sing to God. Now I wonder, I wonder if you've ever thought about that being the natural and climactic response of God's people to his saving works and judgments. All throughout Scripture, that's what we see, isn't it? When the Israelites are saved through the judgment of God against the Egyptians, what do they do? They sing. They come out of Egypt into the wilderness and they sing God's praises. When David is rescued from his enemies, when he's in the midst of fleeing from his enemies, and he's petitioning to God and meditating on God's promises and His ways, both in the midst and after, what does, God, what does David do? He sings to God. When he brings the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem after the people of God's enemies, the Philistines, had been defeated, what is he doing? What are the Israelites doing? They're singing. They're praising God. And at the very end of Scripture, once God has executed all of His righteous judgments and brought salvation to His people, what are they doing? They're singing. They're not just keeping everything in, holding all of their thoughts closely in their hearts. No, that. 
They can't contain themselves. They, they, their hearts well up and they burst forth into song. Singing is natural for the one who has tasted the goodness of God and who's caught up in it. It's not natural when you're out of it. When you're thinking of, of other things. What's really unnatural, especially for the Christian, is to remain silent. It's like a bride that refuses to dance with her groom on the wedding day for fear of making the wrong step. I think that's what we tend to do towards God. We're not so much thinking about His glory and His power and His works as much as we're thinking often about our own natural talents or lack thereof. Will anyone hear me if I sing? I don't have the voice of an angel. Right? I, I have the, the voice of a broken bagpipe. Will anyone hear me? That's, that's often what, what we do. We're, we're thinking of other things besides God and His works and His glory, His goodness towards us. The natural response of the righteous towards God as they are meditating and tasting the goodness of God is one of joy, culminating in a lifting up of the voice to praise the living God. And this, not only for the salvation that we experience, but also for the righteousness of God's judgments. He does all things right. All of His ways are perfect. And because of that, we can trust in Him. We may not know exactly all the reasons why this thing is happening and that one is happening, but we can trust in the goodness of God's ways. And as many of us have already tasted that goodness, it should lead us then into lifting up our voices to His praise, both now and forever. Let's go to the Lord and ask His blessings on His Word. Well, Father, You are a righteous God. As David says, You are the one who judges the peoples. You will set aside the righteous and the wicked on your right and left. You will separate the sheep from the goats. You will separate those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ from those who are clothed only in Adam. And you will reveal those whom your spirit has been working in and through to bear much fruit, and those who have remained in rebellion and who have borne fruit for evil. And because all of your ways are righteous and good, we can praise you and we can trust in you. So I pray, Father, for all of us here that the meditation of our hearts 
that the longing of our souls, that all of our lives would be trusting in you, and that as we taste your goodness, as we walk in your ways, as we lift up our voices in prayer and you deliver us and you answer us from all our afflictions, Lord, may it culminate in songs that praise you from now and forever. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.